the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Should children be permitted to have transgender surgery? And then we're joined by the executive director of Hopeful Beginnings, Natalie Rodriguez. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you with us on a rainy, dreary, that time of year where the rain brings down the wet leaves and you're staring at your lawn. That is that time of year. But hey, we're at I this mean, today. So happy yesterday, Tuesday. Yesterday was so beautiful. And then this morning I was taking my son to the bus stop and we were, he is a drum kit he has to take to school sometimes. And we're like rolling it through all those wet leaves. And I was like, what happened to yesterday? What happened yesterday? But it's that time Why? of year. And you're right, Brian. We're here. We're happy. It's, it's a grand it's Tuesday one of those, afternoon. It's one of those nights where you just feel okay being inside. You're just like, yeah, okay, which, I'll be. Which I like. This is, I'll be honest. I've told you guys this before. I like winter. Not because I like the cold. I actually hate the cold, but I love an excuse to stay inside and not feel guilty about being outside, like not being how outside. About, how about it be 75 degrees out and you just not feel guilty about being inside? I can't. I can't do that. <laughs> if it's 75, I'm like, oh, I need to be in the sunshine. I need to enjoy the day. <laughs> but when it's winter, I don't carry any guilt. I can just sit by the fire and watch Hallmark movies and not feel guilty. Thank you. Thank you for starting our show with your Eeyore voice. <laughs> <laughs> Better than my Irish voice, probably. I'll have to go outside. <laughs> well, we are glad that you're with us today. If you've missed any of our shows this week or last week, you can go get our podcast. Wherever it is, you get your podcast. Just subscribe, rate, review. You can also find us online at 1160hope.com. And Aubrey, as we move into election season, we keep saying that we're moving closer and closer towards the midterm elections. Lots of things on the ballot, per se. We, you know, A lot of things that candidates are running on. We've talked about abortion incessantly on this show, uh, and that's what you see on the commercials. But also inflation. Yeah. Gas right. prices, right. all of this stuff. But a, uh, a something else that is on that list that I think if 10 years ago you had asked us what is a major culture war um, kind of uh, issue, we wouldn't have guessed, uh, is transgender, gender mm. identity, and what should be permitted by the states. What should yeah. the states be doing, particularly yeah. – as it applies to our children and parents and schools and all of this stuff. So I set that up because uh, President Biden gave a very telling interview the other day with a he was getting a lot of flack for doing it with the person. It was transgender comedian on online, kind of an okay. influencer. Huh. Uh, and, and he said a couple different things in this interview. One, he talked about that there should be anybody should be able to use whatever bathroom they want. So that kind of raised some eyebrows. OK, yeah. What raised the eyebrows in the sense of President Biden was laying some stakes in the ground. Yeah, he was. Going, wow. OK, and here was the major one that I would like you to hear audio of uh, where he talked about should states have the right to ban any medical procedures for transgender Americans. Let's, let's, let's listen to this. 
Okay, and when pushed later on, the White House was pushed. Does he mean that for children? Mm. Uh, Should states and also parenthetically parents uh, not be allowed to restrict any transgender surgeries, puberty blockers, all of these different things for children? And the White House refused to answer. The White House uh, refused to clarify. They did not clarify whether what he said that we just listened to uh, was, in fact, his stance for kids. So he could have very Mm -hmm. easily been like, no, children are a different deal. That's between children and their parents. But they decided not to answer. uh, At best. And you could read into it any way you want. But uh, when asked... Uh, does the White House, it said, did not immediately respond when asked if Biden's comments also applied to Americans under the age of 18. And my understanding is, is that they still haven't responded to that. Mm. And so, Aubrey, I I bring that up and I want to start there because uh, this uh, idea of surgery for gender identity, transgender surgery, particularly for our kids. I think if you had asked me about this two or three years ago, I would have been like, could we be talking about more of kind of a fringe issue here? Not an unimportant <laughs> right. issue, but one that most people aren't thinking of. Right. To an issue that has come really in the mainstream. And I think for our our discussion has been put into the laps of us as parents, as pastors, yeah. Yeah. Uh, as churchgoers. It's really here for us to discuss now. Yeah, I, I agree. And it feels like it's happened fast. So in some senses, I think some of us are playing catch up to the conversation yeah. just entirely. You know what I mean? Like, so even even beyond or before surgery, some of us are still playing catch up like, okay, what are help us understand what you mean when you're talking about transgenderism or or various spectrums of sexuality and identity like i think some of us at least in my generation are still like hold on hold on hold on i'm trying yeah. to understand i'm trying to understand but i i think this this concept of surgery for minors in this area is just absolutely wrong i just yeah. think it's so dangerous i think this is an adult decision i think that brains do not i mean i don't think i science says brains for men don't develop or finish developing until i think it's age 24 i can't remember what it is for women and these decisions cannot be made by minors like it's to me it is so devastating and i i just keep going back to like i don't know when we stopped protecting children yeah and when we stopped letting kids be kids and to kit to me to have a, a i mean this is like a life altering decision made mm-hmm. by a child whose brain hasn't fully developed yet i don't know how this is at all acceptable i, yeah. I really don't i really don't and, and ultimately i do feel like it's actually not up to the government either way it's up to parents and families yeah um but but the fact that the government would be like yeah no matter what minors can have this surgery is uh, it's startling it me. is it is uh for those of you who think well maybe he was taken out of context or maybe the you know whatever maybe he got this wrong the department of health and human services office of population affairs released a document in march titled gender affirming care and young people the hhs document described what it called appropriate treatment for transgender adolescents so teenagers like you and i okay. are discussing yeah and part of that document included and this might be somewhat graphic for some of you it included 
what they called, quote, top surgery to create male typical chest shape or enhanced breasts and bottom surgery, surgery on genitals or reproductive organs, facial feminization and other procedures. So there are documents out there. There are guidelines from our government out there. And Mm -hmm. what we want you to realize is. This is not going to go backwards. Yeah. This is only right, going to right, continue spinning forward. Right. So, as parents, we need to be having these conversations with our kids because I yeah. totally agree with you, Aubrey. We've gotten, for some reason, we've not allowed our kids to be kids in the yeah. sense that kids go through phases. That's it. They go through phases. They try on identities. They try on personalities. They try, and and that's part of adolescence. That's part of growing Absolutely. up. Absolutely. But to make a permanent, I mean, I don't even think kids should get tattoos because we don't <laughs> exactly. like, you know, you're the kid who gets the Winnie the Pooh tattoo doesn't want it when they're 35. And I know it's not the same and that's maybe unfair. But what I'm saying is to put an adult decision on a child yep. that permanently alters them is unfair to the vulnerable child. I agree with you completely. And uh, our government does not seem to think so. And so I think the church needs to, like you said, play catch up and get ahead of this. Parents need to get ahead of this uh, and know what is going on. Well, coming up next, we're excited to be joined by the executive director of Hopeful Beginnings, Natalie Rodriguez, as we talk about how do we help families through economic and emotional hardships? We want to give some support to families. We're going to do that next year on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. We are thrilled to be joined by a woman who is officially a friend of the show, show. Natalie Natalie Marie Rodriguez. She's the executive director of Hopeful Beginnings. This is an organization that helps families through economic and emotional hardships, um, all kinds of things, really. That's probably not all that you do. So, Natalie, why don't we start there? Tell us a little bit about yourself and about Hopeful Beginnings. Yes, thank you, Aubrey. Thank you, Brian, for having me on today. I really appreciate it. Yes, Hopeful Beginnings of St. Mary's, we are many things, right? So first and foremost, we are a licensed adoption agency. So we work with women who are not only looking to place their babies for adoption, but also families who are listen, who are hoping to expand their families through adoption. But the other part of our work, which I really want to talk about today, is our counseling work. So mm. part of what we do here at the agency is we work with women who are experiencing postpartum depression, postpartum anxiety, as well as grief and loss of a pregnancy for any reason. And as you may or may not know, October is Infant Loss Awareness Month. So we really want to make sure that um, all your listeners know that we are here um, to get them through those hard times. Mm. Yeah. And Natalie, let's let's talk more about that. You Like you said, October being Infant Loss Awareness month. I can't think of something more emotionally uh, devastating, right, than the loss of an infant. So uh, what does that process look like where you guys walk somebody through that, that hardship? Yeah, that's a great question, Brian. And it's such a hard question to answer in many respects, because that process looks different for every woman and every family who is grieving the loss of a pregnancy. Um, So many times we receive calls um, either from gynecologists or from hospitals where mom has maybe had a preterm labor, Um, you know, baby just decided to come into the world a little bit too early, or for whatever reason, um, the pregnancy was just not able to continue. So our staff would receive that call. And usually what happens is we would make individual appointments for mom to talk with one of our many licensed social workers to start, um, 
just processing that grief and what it means to uh, move forward in life, whether that means to, you know, take care of children she might already be parenting Mm -hmm. or look towards the future to want to be a mom again or try to be a mom again. Yeah. Yeah. I love that you guys do that. Um, Natalie, I, I'm just thinking of stories and I know you can't share client privilege or anything like that, but it, you know, tell us maybe a story of, of a mom who's been encouraged through your work at Hopeful Beginnings. Yeah. So we had a client, um, I want to say about a year ago, she actually, she started working with us. She had, um, experienced a miscarriage. Mm -hmm. So, um, her partner and herself were, were very much wanting a baby. Um, and mom, you know, for medical reasons, you know, that pregnancy just did not continue. And, um, she was very much grieving the loss of, of a baby that she very much wanted. So, um, mom, she met with us for about a year, um, and, you know, really talked with her therapist about coping strategies, you know, how to get through those triggers of, you know, friends having baby showers, mm-hmm. um, you know, the holidays, you know, um, all those little stockings that are always on display in stores, you know, mm-hmm. a happy time for many people is, is a sad time for others. And, yeah. you know, just having that person who's not part of your family to listen without judgment is so important for clients. And Natalie, what does it look? I know you guys deal primarily with moms, but how's it different for dads? And how do you help husbands and wives kind of walk that together? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, we, I always, you know, defer to moms because we are the ones, you know, caring baby, but mm-hmm. very much for dads. It is a process of loss. You know, they're also imagining baby as soon as they see that little ultrasound, that pregnancy test on what their lives will be like. So we are able to counsel couples together if that's something clients are looking for. Um, or we are able to work with dads, you know, separately if they are grieving the loss of a pregnancy of their partner. And Natalie, I'm also thinking for just, you know, the rest of us, we know Mm -hmm. someone who has lost an infant or, you know, has struggled with miscarriages. What are some words of wisdom on just how to be a good friend, how to be a good support, Mm -hmm. how to walk beside those moms and dads who are grieving um, the loss of their child? Yeah, I think always the advice I give, you know, to us support people is be there, check in. Um, You don't always have to talk about the loss, but don't not talk about the loss. Mm -hmm. Um, Sometimes, you know, moms or dads, they might want to explore, you know, what it meant to them, you know, to go through that experience. And sometimes they might just want to talk about their dog or, you know, the sitcom they watched last night. So it's just being that person who is open to either sitting through the pain or, you know, to have some happy distractions. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And Natalie, you guys also help people through, you know, say financial, economic, emotional hardships. We know right now inflation and it's just crazy out there, right? It's just a bit crazy and really stress inducing. So what do you, what would you say to people who are right now really feeling stressed out over the economics that are around us in this world? 
Oh my gosh, Brian, you're speaking my language. As <laughs> um, yes. Yeah, so at Hopeful Beginnings, we also do have a baby closet where we try and provide, um, you know, supplemental things like diapers, formulas, clothing. But my words of wisdom are always look for help, look for resources in your community. Yeah. Even it's just look for, um, you know, the mom at school who has kids who are older than you. You know, uh, so many of my friends and I have come together because, their kids like jeans and my kids like sweatpants. So we'll do a clothing swap. It's getting creative in these times. Um, but look for help because every community has a hopeful beginnings. And if they don't, you're, you're free to come to our office and we are glad to help anyone who's out there. Oh, fantastic. Okay, Natalie, I also know you have a big event, a gala coming up in November. Can you tell our people about that and then how they can find out more about uh, the gala, but also about hopeful beginnings as well? Oh, yes, we have our we're very excited. We have our first in person gala after COVID or after we've adapted to having COVID in the world. <laughs> whatever it is, right now, whatever it is. We will be back in person on November 12th, which is a Saturday at Manzo's Banquets and Displays. Uh, we would love to see all of you listeners um, at our event. We will have some celebrations, some stories to tell. Um, you can find more information on our website at www.hopefulbeginning.org um, and just click on the events and all the details are there. Oh, fantastic. Natalie Marie Rodriguez is the executive director of Hopeful Beginnings. You can find out more about the gala and about this incredible organization. Again, going to hopefulbeginning.org. Natalie, thanks so much for being here with us today. No, thank you guys. Always a pleasure. Thanks. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you with us on a Tuesday afternoon. All right, Aubrey, uh, get ready, people. We say this all the time. Aubrey and I are pastors. We're both pastors. And so I want to have a little bit of a church conversation with you. I got my, got my mind going through an article at Christianity Today uh, yesterday. I like I like always like Christianity Today today or Christianity today yesterday. Uh, it's titled this, Ghosted Again? Pastors respond to disappearing congregants. Church leaders are seeking fresh ways to prevent, quote, backdoor exits and adapt to shifting membership. So we've talked about this uh, on air, off air, but there's a weird dynamic right now that uh, that says this. Um, our churches are just people are coming less often people yeah. have left but, yeah but i want i want to go to the first term they use there ghosting because not only uh you and i probably both have lists from our church of people we haven't seen in a while yeah but what makes this really difficult is not only people we haven't seen in a while but people who we haven't heard from in a while yeah so we never got that email that said right hey, we're right. not around for this reason. Hey, we've left right. your church. Hey, we've right. done this. Uh, I struggle greatly with this. Like it, it probably is my least favorite thing about being a pastor. Totally. Um, so talk about that on a personal level. The idea of being ghosted of people that you used to be in community with and fellowship with. It, yeah. <laughs> I... I'm laughing because I oh, oh, oh. I think for a while I thought, 
you know, like the, I can think of certain people in our church, like we did their premarital counseling. We mm-hmm. performed their wedding ceremony. We lit, we baptized them. Kevin and I baptized each one of them. We dedicated their children. We sat, we've done funerals for their family members and like then all of a sudden they were gone because yes. of it really was COVID stance. I mean, because of something we said or didn't say or they didn't, oh, okay. you know, they didn't like. And and um and that's a picture of I think of what a lot of pastors are facing right now where you sort of and there's a sense that's maybe not fair, but I'm just going to speak to you as a human, not as like a robot where like I thought like, oh, but wait. I thought we were family. Like we've been like pouring into you and we've been doing Christian life together and, and you're part of the body and you just leave without even a word of why or what happened. And this in particular, there's a family that this is truly the case. And like, they won't, I've seen them out in public and like, they won't even acknowledge me or Kevin. Oh, so it's not that they won't. It's not that they won't acknowledge that they left. They just won't acknowledge you at all. Literally. And so it's so weird. And that hurts. Like, Mm. and I know there's a, I know there's a school of leadership that says, well, you can only succeed to the point of your pain, right? As much as you, your Mm. pain threshold is what allows you to succeed. And I'm kind of done with that rhetoric. Like, no, I'm not a robot. I'm a human being. And I understand people leave churches. I understand that. But I can't pretend like it doesn't hurt. Like you have to name that like, wait, there's friendship loss. There's love loss. There's like, and, and you want to know, you want the opportunity, I think, to know what you did wrong. So you could course correct. Mm. Like I would love to be able to go to, and I mean, I'm using one family as like an, uh, an amalgamation of, of, you know, kind of as a metaphor, but like you want the opportunity to go to them humbly and be like, Oh, I'm so sorry you felt this way. Let me tell you my heart's intent or let me tell you what I meant by that or let me or oh, I didn't see it from that perspective. Thank you so much. Like you want the opportunity to humbly respond and repair relationally if you can, but when you just get ghosted, it's just like oh, okay. It it's very hard not to take personally. Yeah. Um and you and and I think for pastors who don't take it personally, it's because they've had to like cut their emotions off to it. And I don't think that's healthy. I don't no, think that's healthy. Anyway, go ahead, Brian, you talk. No, you talk I think now. you said that. Well, I think the, uh, I think this is a pathway to bitterness and cynicism for yeah. us as pastors. It yeah. is a pathway to, Oh wait, we've been talking about community. We've been preaching about community. We've been calling ourselves a family. And then that happens. Well, then why would I, Here's where it gets dangerous. Then why would I ever invest in anyone again? Well, and I I think I've said this before, but that's been a real over the past year, probably that's been a real hardship for me, like a very honest struggle for me. Like Kevin and I are in an amazing renewal community. And like we've had nights where it's just like a renewal community, like our missional community slash small group. We've had nights where it's just like check in with each other, open, open up about life. And I have intentionally skipped those nights. Cause I'm like, I can't, nope, I cannot put myself out there again. I have been yeah. way too. And, and that's not fair. You know what I mean? That's not fair, but it's just a defense mechanism. I'm really praying, praying to the Lord about and, and trying to move forward. And anyway, you, I'm sorry, keep interrupting I don't you. Know, I don't know that I agree with you that that's not fair. Really? I think there comes a point where uh, man, I do 
because we all want to say, hey, listen, this is how I started our church. I was like, I want to just be another church member. I want to be yeah. in this with you. Yeah. I want to be. And what I've come to realize over 12 years is not only is that highly unlikely, but the people in your church don't have that expectation of you. Yeah, maybe that's true. I, maybe that's true. I've got people in my church who can't refer to me by my name. They yeah. just refer to me as pastor. pastor. And so um, I do think that there comes a little self-preservation in the sense of like, hey, I've yeah. got to protect my own. So I have to protect my family soul. I have to protect right. my spouse. You know, you and right. Kevin are kind of in the church together and yeah. every spouse is kind of enmeshed in the church. But they my are. wife did not. But Carrie did not start the church with me. Yeah. Like she is yeah. not. And. I, I've had to get to the point where I'm like, I've got to give some deep thought about how to protect her soul mm. from this people ghosting us, people wow, walking yeah. away. And so what would you say to the ghosters? And and I know it's yeah. easy for us as pastors to be like, don't do that. Right. We act in immaturity in other ways. Like yeah. as pastors, we, we do, do immature totally. things. 100%. Fine. If you're going to leave my church, I'm never talking to you. Yeah, like those types we of totally things. Uh, I just had a moment like that the other day where somebody who left our church in what I would say it, it was a way kind of like this reached back out to me about getting together. And my first thought was, heck nope. no. Yeah, Why would no, I do that? Right. And that might end up being the right answer for my own soul. Yeah, it uh, might be. So I don't want to get on a high horse and be like, well, we're, we're always the mature ones and stop doing this. Yeah. But let's speak to the person who maybe has ghosted their church since COVID or maybe has – yeah. Ghosted their pastor who's like, hey, where are you at? Yeah. What's a word to them? So here's when I've seen it. Careful of that word. <laughs> yeah. Okay. It, I'm going to say this. It's never not going to be painful, especially when you're like us, Brian, when we leave, we lead small churches and you like yes. no names and you know faces. So yep. there's no way to totally avoid the pain because it, I really do believe like God designed the church to be a family. And anytime a family member leaves or gets a divorce, like it hurts and it causes ripple effects. So the pain's going to be there. But I think what is most honorable, I guess, for both parties, if you want to put it that way, is you just send an email. Hey, yeah. I, you don't even have a one-on-one -on -one is amazing. If that feels too hard, just, Hey, pastor, I want you to know X, Y, Z. I've appreciated this. I love the church because of this. Here's the reasons why we've decided to leave blessings. And then you give the pastor an opportunity to respond and to say, thank you so much here. Would love the opportunity to meet with you and tell you my feedback on that. If you want, if not, or the pastor can just say, great blessings, go yeah. and be well. Like just, right. just to think a line of communication, it's still going to hurt. It's not going to yes. feel good as pastors. We just don't want anyone to leave our churches. We want to think we're <laughs> the ones who meet all the needs, but ultimately if you're going to leave, like don't, don't leave without a don't leave without a yes. word of goodbye in person i think is the best but i know that's a lot of pressure so even an email would be great yeah i i think you're 100 percent right i think when people are excited about a church they want to be like close to the pastor and the leaders they want yeah. to but then when they leave they want to do so without the awkwardness and yeah what you need to know is that that's super painful it like is it's super painful uh, that's super painful and i think the mature thing for everybody to do is email text coffee whatever, just, Hey, let's end this well. Yeah. And even if we were friends, let's set the parameters for the friendship going yeah, forward. It, yeah. It's somewhat 
Yeah, it is painful. So this idea of ghosting, it just is just really hard. Like I said, I've never just been a part of a church. Maybe I would ghost my family, my church. I know. I, I, don't I, know. I, I know. I'm, I'm wondering about that too. Would I ever just ghost mine? I don't, I, I don't know. Not, not, not now that you've been in leadership. I don't think you would like before leadership, maybe, but maybe it maybe. is. I mean, I feel like we could talk about this for an hour. It is. It's a wound. It's a wound that is. is like, makes you kind of go, do I want to do this? Do I like this? The hard part is the hard part is it really hardens your heart. It it really makes you, uh, it makes you cynical and hard. Like, as in like, I'm not gonna put myself out there anymore. I'll still preach. I'll still lead. I'll still be, love my church. I'm not that last step of like friendship. eh, friendship. I know it it is difficult. And so so I think what we're saying, pastors, church attenders, let's do this in a healthy way. Let's not yeah. ghost each other. Yeah. Let's actually be the community that we're talking about. Well, uh, I saw some fascinating data, Aubrey, uh, that I want to share with you from a huge survey. I want you to think of this. We talk about the nuns, the people who won't, who, who don't um, uh, ascribe to mm-hmm. any religion, denomination, uh, whatever else it might be. Some data came out about what class of people who is most likely to be a nun. I want you to think about that. I'm going to share that data with you next here on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. All right, Aubrey, teased this before we went to commercial. There was a, a survey. I'm reading this from Ryan Burge. Uh, he is we've had him on the show before. Yeah, he does him, a lot we? of he does a lot of research. And so this is from an organization called Nationscape. And they did okay. a survey of almost five hundred thousand people. So wow. this is no small survey. Uh, and they did this. Who is most likely to be a nun? Now, you and I have talked about this. This is that rising percentage of people in our culture when asked, what is your re- uh, religious affiliation on like a document or a survey or whatever? They've now begun checking none. I'm not a okay. Christian. I'm not Muslim. I'm not Jewish. I'm not even atheist. I'm nothing. I'm none. And so Ed Stetzer writes a lot about the rise of the nuns. Yeah, yeah. Uh, N-O-N-E-S, not N-U-N-S, so the rise (laughs) of the So this survey looks particularly at education level. So what level of education is most likely to say that I am none? I don't know if you've opened it, but if you have have opened it, I have opened it. I won't go. Yeah. So I will say this. I expected... The higher the education level, the more likely to claim none, right? Like, oh, interesting. Okay. That was my first guess because you start to think, oh, they start thinking I'm a smarter than this religion oh, thing. Okay. I'm smarter. Right, right. The reality is that it is the opposite. So the, the least likely to claim to be a quote unquote none are those with a master's degree. So Hmm. 20% of those in this survey with a master's degree Hmm. said that they are none. The next lowest is 21%, which is some people with uh, people with some grad work. So they hadn't finished their grad degree, but they have some level of grad degree. A doctorate, it went up a little more to 24%. Okay. The highest, the most likely to claim none are people who did not finish high school. 
32%, followed closely at 28% by those people who only have a high school degree. And it goes down from there. I okay. found that really surprising. I, I want to try to – I don't have an answer at the end as to what does this mean. But Ryan Burge goes on to also say this is true for church religious attendance as well. Those with only a high school diploma are eight points more likely to report that their church attendance as seldom or never compared to somebody with a college degree. So people hmm. with college degrees – uh, go to church more often and people with post-college degrees hmm. go to church more often than them. It is people hmm. with only high school degrees who are going to church less. So I do you a does that surprise you at all? Because it does surprise me. That actually surprises me, right? You used to hear that religion is the opiate of the masses, the right. uneducated, that they grab right. onto quote unquote kind of the fairy tale of religion surveys here with a lot of people surveyed are actually saying the opposite. Is that surprising to you? And then more importantly, what's the takeaway from data like this? So I'm, I, it isn't, it isn't surprising to me. And of course, anytime you have, anytime you have, uh, uh, surveys like this, you have to go, okay, what was the ethnic population what was the socioeconomic like there's lots of questions okay but like if we're just going to take it at face value i there is this part of me that someone who enjoys higher education i think the older you get and the more educated you get you actually learn to like wrestle with faith um with your mind and not just like inheriting it from somebody else. And so, and then I think there is a place where people go, actually, okay, maybe I'm not this like evangelical Christian, but I see that there's a, that there's a good contribution to society when I'm a person of faith or attend a church or, so I actually think um, academics can get there. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, it can wrestle with why they do what they do or believe what they believe because they're just exposed to a lot where I think sometimes if you aren't exposed to different viewpoints or whatever, that's no fault of your own. That just is mm-hmm. what it is. Like you just don't get that type of education from high school all the time. Then you're kind of like um, that may be when it's more of the opiate of the masses. When you're like, well, none of my friends believe, none of my communities believe. I haven't had to really wrestle with this. I'm gonna, therefore, I, I'm I'm just gonna give up on faith. Mm. I'm curious about age too in in this thing because sometimes I wonder is this a generational thing? Yeah, so I don't know. I'm yeah. making sweeping statements. Do you know what I mean? But um, what it says to me is that like high school religious education needs to get better and Interesting. stronger and that's help, not a bad and help people understand at a younger age the value of religion even if it's from an academic point of view right like even if you're not like um proselytizing a certain faith you're just saying here's why across time and space and the globe people have chosen to be people of faith. Here's the value that it's added. Here's the community. Here's the support. Here's the way it's helped people think and imagine and create. Even to have that kind of conversation at an earlier age is interesting to me based on this. Yeah. Yeah. It's that's I hadn't really thought about that. See, this is why we bring this kind of stuff up. Like this might be a clarion call to youth pastors out there. Yeah. And maybe to churches so. to say, uh, 
hey, I, I think that one of the things we need to do better uh, is to um, not just entertain our kids and then think to ourselves when they get older, mm-hmm. we will start imparting deep theology on yeah. them. But maybe we need to be thinking about grounding them in the in, in the um, in the theology of the faith and the orthodoxy. Yeah. We need to be yeah. grounding them earlier. That yeah. that's interesting. What does that look like for a high school kid? Do you think you and I are former youth pastors? Yeah, I mean, you know, it it almost it makes me think of like an early catechism, right? Like, or mm-hmm. or even an early like a, a form of apologetics that like isn't cheesy, but is like deep and and meaningful, you know, and helps kids sort of uh, begin to articulate their faith, why they believe what they believe, not just what they believe. And again, like a step back perspective on why it's valuable to have faith, specifically the Christian faith, um, I think would be, you know, I'm thinking of something like alpha youth, yeah, where yeah. they they focus on these questions of the Christian faith, but do it, you know, for youth. I think something like that. It was already packaged, pretty simple. Would be really, really powerful for youth groups across the states to adapt or adopt before kids graduate. Yeah, I think, and and there's also something in here about affiliation. Like they're not necessarily saying we reject the faith. It's more we reject the titles of mm, uh that maybe yeah. that early on we're not doing a good job of teaching like this is why church matters this yeah. is why this is why structure matters this is yeah. why even you know denominate like hierarchy matter like this is why these things matter mm-hmm. and that maybe when you're talking about intellectual you know post doctorate your masters there's a little bit more of that because you've been in that structure more yeah, yeah. Uh, to do that. I find this fascinating. These it are is some interesting. fascinating findings uh, as to what is the education level uh, of, of the nuns and what do we do about that? Oh, I find that helpful. All right, coming up next, internet backlash. We're going to talk internet back. That never happens. The internet, there's never <laughs> internet backlash. We're going to talk about that next year on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Brian, have you heard of the internet? Uh, I've been there sometimes. Okay, uh, yeah. I've this- heard of it. Uh, I think it might not last. You know, like I think that might just be a fad. But yes, I'm it's aware. It's a phase. It's a phase. It's a phase. <laughs> okay, well, you know, as we all know, the internet is a funny place to be. It brings up a lot of uh, backlash, for lack of a better word. And I was, first of all, I want to share two stories with you. One, I was following uh, Nona Jones, who we've had on the show before, uh, not Nora Jones, as we always, always say. confuses me. Yeah. So Nona Jones posted something on Instagram that connects to the story I want to share in just a minute. But she said this. If you post a picture of clouds on the Insta- on Instagram, the comments be like, number one, beautiful clouds. Number two, <laughs> why didn't you post the ocean? Number three, that's your problem. You're not down to earth. 
Number four, so grateful to at Crypto Clouds for saving my life. And she That's said, so funny. since I work for the company that owns Instagram and Facebook, she works for Meta. She said, I'm constantly amused by how people show up in the comments of people's posts, especially my own. I often find myself trying to do comment calculus to de- figure out how someone arrived at the anti-derivative of a super straightforward point. But no matter how unpredictable comments may be, one thing I know I can depend on, somebody is grateful to a bot for saving their life so that's so funny like i think that's so true about the internet is you could post a picture of the clouds and people are like you hate the ground how dare you You (laughs) people do that right they do that on social media that like just a generic post becomes a like referendum on it totally does why did you not mention this i just wanted to take a picture of a cat i like that cat i hate cats okay Or like, they'll be like, yeah, well, for all the people who never have seen a cat before, this is really privileged. Like what people end up doing is centering themselves in other people's stories. Like it becomes about your issue or your problem rather than just like taking it for what people are saying. And this happened. I don't know if you saw this, Brian. There was a lot of backlash uh, um, against Daisy Miller. Okay. 24 years old. that is. Okay, she's 24 years old. She and her husband own like a yoga slash organic farm retreat place. Okay. And she was on Twitter. And I saw this only because of BuzzFeed. I don't actually follow her. 24 years old. Her name's Daisy Miller. Her husband is Matt Beaton. Okay. And um, she posted something about how they start their day. They built a regenerative garden in their yard where they spend time. And she said, it's been our favorite place to spend our free time. Every morning we wake up, make coffee and breakfast and go out to our yard with our cat, our cat to have coffee and visit before we start our days and head to work. Such a great way to relax, connect together before the busyness of the day, etc. Okay, so she tweeted about this, having coffee in the garden with her husband every morning. She said, we never run out of things to talk to. I love him so much. Okay, that's what she tweeted. Okay. It, um... There were over 330,000 reactions to it. And basically, people were so mad about what she posted. Now, before I start sharing uh, with you what people were angry about, can you... Because to me, I thought, why? I don't understand why people are mad. She's saying she gets up with her husband, has coffee. They sit and talk for hours. They love each other so much. Like, that was the post. Can you guess what people started to get mad about? that's such a complicated question because what do people ever get mad about i think people got mad that they don't have similar amounts of time to sit in the garden and and love on their spouse and this and that but that's super cynical, but I'm guessing that, it, oh, it's got to be nice to have uh, time yeah, to sit yeah. around and do yep, nothing. Oh, yep, it's got to. Yep. That's my guess. What Am I right? Yep. Am I close? Oh, you are so close. I mean, it was all across the board, but basically people centered themselves in her story and they made a lot of assumptions. One was about the couple's financial status. Somebody said, yep. I wake up every day. Like she says, I wake up every morning, bring coffee to our garden. He says, I wake up every day with chronic pain and I wash my OCD medication down with an iced oat milk. <laughs> 
but whatever. And then somebody else put, this is cute and all, but do you think of all the people who wake up and work grueling hours, wake up on the streets alone or with chronic pain before posting this? You should be mindful next time you brag about your picture-perfect life, you might upset someone. Somebody else said what you said, Brian. Well, what if we aren't inherently wealthy and we have to work and stuff? And other people put like, well, good for you, but the rest of us have jobs. You know, and on and on and on it went. Somebody else so, put, what? wait, let me say one more because this yeah. is funny. What is the purpose of this communication? I'm happy for you, but it's smug, self-satisfied, and bragging. Your partner is most likely embarrassed by this tweet or should be. That is unless you are flogging something. Despite the backlash, some people did defend her. So anyway, that's that's what people do that on the internet. Is, like the, <laughs> those are the ones like when I see stuff like that, my my actual first thought is like, why are the people commenting on that on the internet, like on social media? Like if it riles you up that much, because yeah. we all know that social media, the purpose of social media is to put your best foot forward. Of course it is. But hey, that's her life. Like yeah. she yeah. she doesn't have to apologize for right. her life. Right. What I think is this is more this is less about her. This is so much more about like, if that's the reaction that social media causes in your life, what in the world? My first thought was then don't follow her. But actually, right. I think my thought is like, delete every social media account that you have. If it's going to raise this envy yeah. and jealousy yeah. and smug, like all of that in you to that level, yeah. why in the world would you put yourself in that? Like if you're out there and you go on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram and your first thought is like, Oh, I'm so angry that that person has a better life than me. Oh, I'm so right. angry that they have that free time. Oh, I'm so angry that they can go on vacation. I hate right. my life, whatever. Why in the world would you be on social media? Like at the very yeah. least, block the people who make you jealous. Yeah. At yeah. best, get off it altogether. Yeah. I, I don't understand that at all. I, I feel like I I feel like what you're saying is exactly right. It's not about this young woman's tweet. It's about like the people's like jealousy and envy and bitterness and angry, like anger, like that's the problem here. Like ultimately a 24 year old that's so young, by the way, said, yeah. I enjoy mornings with my husband. You know what I mean? I mean, and people just lost their minds. And I think you're right. Like if you, if, if following people online causes you, you to react like that in your soul, you probably just need to not be on the internet ultimately, yes. like, or, or get off social media. Somebody else put that lady said she enjoys mornings with her husband and folks said, not on my watch. And that's like, I felt like that's it. Like people <laughs> freaked out just because I, I feel like it's the equivalent of you posting about your amazing, um, a weekend family weekend with your daughter yep. right you post amazing pictures of your family you're like i'm so thankful to god for this amazing weekend and if everybody was like well i had to work over the weekend yeah. well it's i gotta be nice to yeah it's gotta be nice to afford college like it's gotta <laughs> yeah. be nice yeah yeah i i think this says so much more about the people commenting than totally. it does her and totally. i think if you if you are this sort of bitter and you are this sort of jealous and this yeah. sort of, You've got to get off of social media. It is it. going to be That's the it. worst place that you can be. If you find yourself just judging other people and like kind of getting sanctimonious, like, oh, I'm going to tell it, like, just 
go about your life, get off yeah. social media, or at the yeah. best, at the very least, just follow people who are close to you. And, yeah, that's And it. I think you'll be much better off. Yeah, I think you'll do the work of your own soul healing that obviously needs to happen. All right. Well, I just thought that was a wild look at the internet. So I wanted to talk about that. Coming up next, we are joined by Michelle Sanchez. She's the author of a book called The Color Courageous Discipleship. She's the senior discipleship and evangelism leader of the Evangelical Covenant Church. It's a multi-ethnic denomination and really looking forward to hearing what she has to say about color courageous discipleship when we return. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hi, friends. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Aubrey Sampson. My name is Brian Fromm, and Aubrey and I love to have on the show uh, authors and discuss their books and, and what God is doing in and through people. And with that in mind, we are thrilled to have on the author of a new book called Color Courageous Discipleship. Her name is Michelle Sanchez. Michelle, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Glad to be here. We're really glad to have you with us. Hey, before we dive into the book, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit more about yourself and tell us a little bit more about this book? Sure. My name is Michelle Sanchez. I've been serving for the past eight years as executive minister of Make and Deepen Disciples for the Evangelical Covenant Church denomination. So basically, I've been leading discipleship for a number of years nationally. And this book, Color Courageous Discipleship, is all about the connections between resisting racism and being followers of Jesus. Mm. Um, Michelle, the book looks fantastic. I'm sitting here looking at it right now and noticing you have a student edition as well. Yes. Talk to us about what um, people will find in the book. Color Courageous Discipleship, Follow Jesus, Dismantle Racism, and Build Beloved Community. Yeah. So, you know, I have spent a lot of time on the traditional discipleship topics, things that we all care for as followers of Jesus, reading the Bible, praying, worship, fellowship. These are all kind of your uh, standard classic discipleship topics. Mm -hmm. But what do they have to do with resisting racism and building a beloved, diverse community? I think a lot of us don't understand those connections. And so this book dives deeper into it. I think it's ironic that in many parts of our country or the world, there are people who follow Jesus, but somehow still are experiencing racial inequity and injustice. Mm -hmm. Why is that? So this book will help explain why that is and to make connections to the normal things we do following Jesus and how they can help us resist racism. That's great. Michelle, let me ask you kind of the foundational question that a lot of people even listen to this may be raising. Hey, listen, uh, let's just talk about following Jesus. Let's just talk about (laughs) the gospel. Racism, uh, you know, that's a touchy subject. Shouldn't we just be focusing on the gospel? Obviously, I'm sure you've heard that a million times. How do you answer that question? Yes. Oh, so number one, Jesus is everything, always, all the time. So we can agree on that. This shows <laughs> common, right? Common good. That's right. So ultimately, yes, our focus, we want it to be on Jesus. But here's the thing. Jesus calls us as disciples to bring his whole gospel into the world. Yeah. Not just one part, right? Yeah. And so one part of the gospel is reconciliation with God. And yes, that is foundational. We want to introduce people to Jesus. But Jesus was also about reconciling people to each 
each other and to uplift people who are experiencing injustice or marginalization. Mm. He did that for the whole time he was with us. And he invites us into that as well. And so... Right. The question is, how can we experience more of the gospel? How can we experience more of Jesus and build the kingdom like he called Mm. us to do? Oh, so beautiful. I know, Michelle, part of uh, what you're doing in the book is also talking about how we build beloved communities. Can you kind of unpack what you mean by that? Oh my goodness, yes. So the concept of beloved community is one that was made famous by Martin Luther King Jr. Mm. And a lot of people know that he had a dream, but really the way that his dream can be described is this phrase he used toward the end of his life called beloved community. Um, And, you know, it gets at what is the difference between what we're looking to do as Christians and maybe what a secular approach would be. And Martin Luther King, you know, he defined our goal as love. Our goal is a diverse community um, that loves one another with the love of Christ. Yeah. Right. And, and this, um, you know, the greatest commandment of Jesus is love. And so justice is great and equality is great and all of those things. Yes. Yes. But ultimately it's about loving one another uh, with the love of Jesus. Mm. And that's what beloved community is about. Yeah. Beautiful. When I think about things like beloved community, Michelle, or or fighting racism or all these things that you talk, such important things you talk about, uh, I guess I would love to know, do you feel good or are you discouraged about the trajectory of the church right now? <laughs> good question. <laughs> Is that a trick question? <laughs> oh, I, you know what? Um, the, the, the longer that I follow Jesus, the more I realize, man, we are a complex combination <laughs> of sin and of goodness, of the goodness yeah. of God, all mixed up together in each mm. and every one of us. And so certainly, um, you know, when I look at uh, what's happened in the last few years, uh, I see both. I, I'm encouraged and discouraged. I'm encouraged mm. because there are more people who are on the journey and seeking to learn and understand a biblical approach to race and racism. Um, And then there's also been a backlash, right? And there's lots of people who are pushing back and who are resisting the conversation. And so really, I see both. But you know, for sanity, I think it's good for us to do what the Bible encourages and to focus on what is good, right? Mm. Think about where God is at work, focus on those places and join him. And so Mm. I stay encouraged. Such a such a beautiful, positive answer. So one of the things that you do in the book, again, the title is Color Courageous Discipleship, is you have interviews with various uh, pastors and authors and other people. It's so, so interesting. Can you talk to us about why that was meaningful, important part of your work in this book? Oh, yes. So I have numerous interviews. Um, almost after every chapter, I go into depth into someone's story. And um, the reason I do this is because the book is about discipleship, uh, right? It is about how do people who are actually on this journey, who are leading in this journey, actually empower their journey spiritually, Right. So many of us may have heard from um, authors and writers like Eugene Cho or um, David Swanson, Ephraim Smith, Sheila Wise Rose, Sung Chan Ra. There's so many um, mm-hmm. thought leaders in this area. 
Um, but we don't know what empowers them spiritually. And mm. so, and, and how, you know, um, their relationship with Jesus empowers everything they do. And so I wanted people to understand that. I wanted people to see how, uh, how essentially resisting racism with Jesus can help you grow closer to him and empower you for the journey. That's good. How, awesome. uh, Michelle, how are you hoping churches use this book? Is this a small group book that you want to see? What, what would you like for people to do with your book? Oh, my goodness. Okay. So listen, <laughs> I because of my role, I'm constantly equipping whole churches. Yeah. So I would love to see this book used. There's going to be um, within a few months time um, on my website, colorcourageous.com. You'll find sermon outlines that you can use also for teaching a class. Um, there are small group questions available. There's going to awesome. be PowerPoint slides and graphics. There's going to be a children's activity kit. I mean, it is going to be the whole nine yards. So you can use it in a small group context, or you can take your entire church through it. As you mentioned, there is an adult edition. There's a student edition. There is also a picture book, friends. So I know discipleship happens best when you do it together in mm. community as a whole family, right? And so I wanted to just pull out all the stops and make mm -hmm. sure people have what they need to disciple others. Ugh. This looks so fantastic, Michelle. Where can uh, pastors, readers, small group leaders, followers of Jesus find, find you and find this book as well? All right. Yes, I've got a couple ways. So you can go to colorcourageous.com. Uh, everything that you want is there. Special gift for you as well. If you want to see a sneak preview of all three books, including the whole first chapters of the adult and student editions and pages from the kids book, you can text 44144 to courage, 44144 to courage. And that. then finally, there's a party. Nice. I can tell you. Okay. Yeah, mm -hmm. talk about the party. Everybody's invited. I'm actually having a book launch party in Chicago this upcoming Sunday, October 30th. It'll be at New Community Covenant Church in Logan Square. The details are on the website and you can RSVP there. Uh, 7 to 8.30 p.m. free. All are invited. And guys, there's even going to be childcare provided. There you go. So, <laughs> so you have no excuse. Come, come and visit me. I'd love to see you uh, this Sunday colorcourageous.com to find out more. Awesome. Michelle Sanchez, the author of Color Courageous Discipleship. Go check it out uh, and all the different ways she said you can. Michelle, this has been wonderful. Thanks for joining so us good, today. Michelle. Thank you. Love you guys. Take care. You too, you too. You're listening to The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.